Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosser. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back to Viewpoints, uh, Paul Monk. He's an Australian writer, poet, consultant, speaker, and a former head of the China desk with the Australian Defence Intelligence Organisation and the author of Thunder from the Silence Zone, Rethinking China. And where China's a very topical country in which to speak uh, of these days, very influential, growing power, and uh, there's a lot of talk about China's grand strategy. So uh, we've got someone who's got a lot of expertise, experience, and interest in uh, China politically with us today, Paul Monk. Welcome again to Viewpoints, Paul. Thanks, Henry. It'd be, uh, it is good to be with you again. Absolutely. Now, thunder from the silence zone, rethinking China. That uh, You might just explain that to our listeners, just to give us a sample of uh, your background and interest in Chinese politics. Yes. Well, as you remarked, I was uh, appointed head of the China desk in, in DIO back in 1994. And uh, after leaving government, um, and I might say parenthetically, I left government service cheaply because despite intensive lobbying on my part, neither defence nor foreign affairs would agree to develop me as a bona fide China expert. They wouldn't give me language training. They wouldn't give me country experience. I thought, well, fine, I'm just going to do something else for a living. But I've, I kept my hand in on China. I lectured in Chinese politics at one of our universities in 1999. And I wrote a string of essays for the serious press about China in the 2000s and the result of that was this book, Thunder from the Silence Zone, Rethinking China, which is intended in 2005 as a kind of handbook for the, the intelligent citizen to get their minds around what's happening here and what, how is China changing? What does it mean for us? And um, the title is taken from a poem by the great Chinese poet and novelist Lu Xun uh, of the 1920s and 30s. Um, and it refers to the suppression of dissent in China. He was writing before the communist regime, of course, um, and essentially saying that um, uh, if you're listening closely in a suppressed society, there is anger and unspoken you know, dissent, even where people are being silenced. Um, and that, that poem of his was actually written up on dorm walls by students in Beijing in 1989 when the regime was cracking down on democracy uh, and dissent then. So that's where I got the title of the book from. And uh, uh, it really is a pain to the best in China and, uh, and an analysis of, of trends. And, and signally, what it does is it lays out four differing scenarios about China's possible futures very critical of those uh, still, as I was then, who project into the future confidently saying, know what's going to happen. And my argument was, we actually don't. There's a number of quite distinctly different possibilities in China's futures, and we need to look at a whole bunch of variables to see uh, which one is, is emerging and, and what factors or changes would contribute to a shift. Um, so, yeah, in, in brief, that, that's what the book's about. Now, fast forwarding to today, um, from the rearward vision of your book then, um, what what's going on now? What are the factors uh, we need to take into account now in better understanding China? And I guess in, in, in saying that, um, working with them, they are a very important uh, power in the world. Yes. Well, one way to answer your question is to say that the four scenarios to which I just referred were called mutation, maturation, militarization, and metastasis. 
And mutation was a scenario in which China, as it grew wealthier, would liberalize and open up in much the same way that, say, South Korea and Taiwan had done. Uh, it would therefore become wealthier, it would become a, a better and um, a more attractive trading partner for us, and it would become more open and rule governed. And that would all be to the good. Um, we hung on to the idea for the longest time that that would occur. It hasn't occurred. Um, and the other scenarios were much less attractive. Um, maturation was one in which China would actually get to a kind of middle income level and then stall because the obstacles to going through were, were too difficult to negotiate. Militarization is one where China, as it grew wealthier, would pour resources into internal suppression and, and military power and be tempted to use them. Uh, and metastasis is one in which the party's refusal or inability to negotiate the obstacles to liberalization and reform would lead to an actual regime crisis and an implosion. Uh, and I wrote a piece last year in which I said mutation under Xi Jinping is, is explicitly off the agenda. Maturation is a possibility that is the leveling out of its of its rapid growth. Militarization is definitely happening. Metastasis is more possible now than it has been for a long time. So we're now in, um, you might say, uncharted territory. Um, and we are going through a period of difficult adjustment in our perceptions of China and our hopes for the relationship with China. It isn't easy to work with Xi Jinping's regime because it is a nasty regime. It's become uh, uh, arrogant and bullying towards many of its neighbors. We're only one. Uh, and we have to think very hard about how to deal with this in as intelligent and constructive a way as we can, uh, while keeping our eye on the possibility that there are distinctly different scenarios still. And catastrophic conflict is one of them. It is certainly the least desirable. The question is how to avoid that while maintaining our sovereignty and regional prosperity and uh, the jury's the jury's out on that you know the verdict's not in yet mm. there's there's a lot of um players in that field over whom we have limited uh influence for example the united states have a very vested interest in uh, the asia pacific uh, uh power plays uh, india japan all as you said the southeast asian countries uh how they react uh to and work with China uh, is central to where we may head. What do you see in terms of how those countries are behaving towards China in, in, in trying to end up with, a, I guess, a, a global order that's functioning reasonably harmoniously? I think we're in a period of transition. As you'll be aware, and many of your listeners doubtless, uh, Australia has, for the last few years, been uh, tinkering with what's called the Quad, that is a growing alignment between ourselves, India, Japan, and the United States to try to rebalance Asia and keep China honest. And um, one of the difficulties of working this out in Asia is that unlike Europe, which in the 20th century went through two you know, cataclysmic conflicts um, and uh, then evolved institutions to try and keep the peace. There really aren't corresponding institutions in Asia. Um, the United States, of course, after the Second World War, took a predominant position. China is seeking to change that. It wants to be the predominant power in Asia. China's problem is that nobody else 
wants it to be the dominant power in Asia. We're all happy to trade with it. We're all delighted that it's more prosperous than it used to be, but we're not comfortable with its desire to dominate us. Mm. That's where the problem lies. So there's a lot of careful thought and hopefully cost-effective um, institution building uh, and possibly military expenditure just to try and hold the line and uh, and rearrange things so that everybody can live with a richer and more powerful China, but have it not seek to dominate its neighbours. And there's no question that that in Japan and India, as well as in Australia um, and in other countries, in South Korea, in Vietnam, uh, you have all of these significant countries thinking, you know, China is getting uh, Russia blood to the head. You know, it, it wants to dictate not only how we should respect its core interests, but how we should even talk uh, inside our own countries about China and its interests. And, and nobody's willing to wear that. So uh, we're in for a very interesting time. What about the American relationship with China? It's clearly deteriorated under the current regime. Uh, the forthcoming election, uh, uh, we've got two options. Either Donald Trump gets re-elected or Joe Biden gets elected. Uh, will the outcome of that election have any significant difference in the relationship, do you think, between the US and China and the flow-on effect to the various uh, other countries such as ours who have connections with both? I think it will. I mean, um, the Trump presidency has been a very polarizing uh, episode in American history, and U.S. society at the moment is is um, more divided than it's been in a long time. Uh, I've never been an admirer of Donald Trump. I, my personal view was from the start that he's not fit to be president of the United States, and and uh, I think it's a it's a shock that he was able to get elected, and I very much hope he won't get reelected. And I have good friends who disagree with me quite deeply on that, but that happens to be my position. Joe Biden is not the ideal candidate to contest the election with him. He, he's not an inspiring political figure. However, I do think that if Biden was to win the election, and at the moment it would appear he probably will, that that will steady the ship a bit. I think he will be um, a more responsible president, a less capricious one, a less narcissistic one. He will gather better expertise around him and he will listen to advice. He won't try and do foreign policy by Twitter. You know, so I think that a Biden victory would do a power of good, but there's a lot of ground to make. Mm. We need to take a short break, Paul. Can you hold the line? Sure. Welcome back to Viewpoints Listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grussick. I'm in a little discussion with Paul Monk, who's a writer, Australian writer, poet, consultant, speaker, but uh, also a former head of the China Desk with the Australian Defence Intelligence Organisation. Welcome back, Paul. Thank you, Henry. Paul, we've spoken about uh, America. You spoke about the Quad. Um, over time, there's been... Massive differences among those countries on a, on a range of things. I mean, the Second World War, China, uh, Japan were, um, were certainly not the friends of the US or Australia or many of those Asian countries. India's, <laughs> India's, India's sort of been a bit of a, uh, a sleeping giant there. It's awakening. Um, how does Australia position itself with, I mean, you've got America, Japan, China and India and Australia, 
very different in many ways. How would how do you build a consensus between such countries with such competing often and different interests? Well, you know, uh, alliances tend to be made based on common interest rather than completely identical political cultures. Uh, and uh, uh, it's an old maxim in foreign policy that a country doesn't have permanent friends, only permanent interests. Uh, this is a kind of illustration of that. I mean, uh, let's take, for example, the matter of Japan. So you referred to Japan in the Second World War was being our enemy, which it of course was. It attempted back then under a militarist regime to take over Asia and not simply by means of, uh, of soft power, <laughs> but by conquest. Um, it was roundly defeated and the transformation of Japan after the war was one of the great accomplishments of the Pax Americana. Um, so since then, Japan has been firmly within the US alliance system uh, it has become a flourishing and democratic state uh, and it has not used military power in any capacity since 1945. It's had a constitution, in fact, which prohibited the, the country from doing that, except in self-defense, which because of US protection hasn't been necessary. So, so everything has changed with regard to Japan. Many people in Asia, however, have long memories and, and they are still uneasy about the idea of Japan becoming a major military power again. And that's one of several reasons why most of them, uh, the South Koreans, the, the Filipinos, the Singaporeans, the Vietnamese, despite the Vietnam War, want the US to stay because they don't want China to dominate. Um, they have even deeper historical memories of China than they do of Japan. They don't want Japan to start arming up again because that makes them nervous. Uh, they want the US. They see the US as an honest broker. Uh, the situation is comparable in a very different way in the case of India, because throughout the Cold War, India sought to be neutral. It was part of the so-called non-aligned movement. And Nehru had espoused the form of, uh, of what you might call uh, soft socialism in India. He was not a Bolshevik. He, he wasn't into killing the rich or purging the party and things like that, like in the Soviet Union. Um, but he did think that, that socialism would be a better economic development model for India than capitalism. By the end of the Cold War, the leaves of India had decided, well, actually, that didn't work. It kept India very poor. And uh, so they've been trying various kinds of market reforms to ginger up the Indian economy and with significant success. Uh, and what they've realized is that China's growing power, instead of leading simply to a more balanced world, is leading to Chinese hubris, uh, which we're seeing exhibited at the moment with China intruding militarily into northern India and contested territory. Uh, so for that reason, or those reasons, you might say, India has gravitated more towards the United States than um, it did during the Cold War. We, of course, have always been an ally of the United States. We've we've been in the Commonwealth with India, and we play cricket with India. You know, and we're both democracies. We both have a tradition of English language usage and so forth. So we have a lot in common with India. Um, so that, broadly speaking, is the basis for the core. But the core of it, the reason that we're all talking to one another and doing some military exercises together is because we have in common, absent any other consideration, concern about China's growing pushiness. Mm, good point. Now, there's another major power, uh, Russia. Now, the Chinese have had an interesting relationship with the, the, the Russians. It waxes and wanes, depending on, uh, well, a lot of circumstances. Uh, the personality of leaders is one of them. Where does Russia fit in the puzzle? 
Well, Russia has always been a very interesting um, puzzle. You know, there's a famous statement by Churchill speaking of Stalin's Soviet Union that um, I think the expression was it's a it's a puzzle wrapped inside a mystery, inside an enigma. And uh, um, to get Russia more fully integrated into a sort of democratic capitalist model would have been very desirable in the 1990s and it didn't work. It, it slid back under Putin from 1999 into uh, an autocratic regime that was a, a resentful outsider in Europe and a spoiler in terms of the EU. And it remains that way. Um, with regard to Russia's relationship with China, um, we were talking a moment ago about historical factors, the perceptions of Japan, for instance. In Russia, there's this deeply ingrained uh, kind of ambivalence about Europe, but at least as much about China. And that goes all the way back to the Mongol invasions where the nascent state of Kievrus and then the, you know, the principality of Muscovian Song were overrun by the by the uh, the Mongols, uh, and um, uh, this this sense of a threat from the east. You know, in Australia, we're often berated for fearing the yellow peril. Well, Russia is the same. <laughs> you know, and and it's it's rooted in this history and this phobia. So, given that it's vast and very underpopulated uh, Siberian hinterland uh, is exposed to potential Chinese influence or or migration. Uh, Russia and, and its citizens do have ambivalence about China's growing power. At the same time, they're both authoritarian states. And for that reason, uh, if nothing else, they see themselves as having some common ground in defying and perhaps trying to weaken the uh, alliance of democratic and capitalist states. Mm. Um, and they now have a complementarity in that Russia is able to provide and has been providing to China for some years, both uh, energy sources uh, from Russia's vast hydrocarbon reserves and military technology, which um, which Putin sought to rebuild. One of the very few strengths of the Soviet Union was its military power. China, of course, is rapidly becoming first-class uh, military power and military industrial power in its own right. But military technology has certainly been something that Russia had to sell um, uh, that, of course, gets to a certain point, and then the Russians start to think, well, it's all very well to strengthen them as a potential partner, but we don't want them to get too strong. Um, so in theory, you know, if you look a little further ahead past present anxieties, a Western agenda might reasonably be we would like very much to find a way, if it can be found, despite everything, to get Russia to move into a... Uh, a different constitutional framework, become better integrated and more friendly with Europe. And we would like China to relax a little and start that process of institutional reform, which would make political and geopolitical interaction tractable and more comfortable. Um, and sooner rather than later, if we're going to avoid uh, sustained and costly confrontation, say nothing of outright conflict, we would like to think that's the direction things will go. But the autocrats in those states are thinking the opposite direction. They're thinking of undermining our democratic institutions. And in the recent past, they've been succeeding. So we've got a lot of work to do in that respect.
Mm. Time's on the wing, Paul. Uh, uh, perhaps a short response. COVID-19 has been a global pandemic. It's affected uh, everybody, uh, every nation on earth to some degree, and it, 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 it'll continue to do so. It's also created some cooperation we haven't seen in, in a long time uh, globally. Um, is there some light at the end of the tunnel via the prism of COVID-19 in terms of uh, potential better cooperation between us all? I think COVID-19 has been a, an indication, if we needed one, that there are problems that, that badly need global cooperation. Uh, I don't think that the cooperation so far has been very impressive. What's mostly been in evidence is a crisis of international cooperation, disarray in terms of agreement about policy and codicils and the World Health Organization, um, direct slanging matches between China and the United States instead of them coming together and say, listen, there's great and responsible powers. We have to tackle this together. They haven't done it. So we do need to do that in this and in regard to a number of other problems. And, uh, and I think COVID is a warning, but uh, at the moment that warning has not by any manner of means been sufficiently heated, I would say. Mm, well, we can only hope. Paul, it's been, as always, a pleasure having you on the program. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, the world's a complex place. And uh, we certainly, we certainly, I think we're all tired of uh, the tension and the stress and the, and, the, and the differences and the squabbling between us. It would be good if we could see our way through it. Um, can I thank you very much for your time again? You're most welcome, Henry. Paul, talk to you again. Paul Monk, writer, poet, consultant uh, and uh, former Australian head of the China desk in the Australian Defence Intelligence Organisation. We'll take a short break. Listeners, don't go away. 